And today, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to talk about the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit that will clothe Christians in miraculous, explosive power. If you are new today, I'm so excited that you're here. If you are been coming for a while, I'm really excited that you're here because the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit is He does not discriminate. He is for all people of all genders, of all classes, of all backgrounds. He is for all people, regardless of your religious history and how you grew up. He is for all people. Can I get a real quick show of hands? Who grew up in a charismaniac church? <laughs> Charismatic Pentecostal church? Okay. Who grew up? Who, who grew up in a church um, like a really conservative, no band, that kind of church? Bunch of people put in there. Wow. Who here has never been to a charismaniac church except for now? <laughs> a couple of people. I'm so glad that you're here. I don't think we're charismaniacs. Okay. I think we are Christians. Charismaniac, basically, you know, like you just—they're a bit loopy, us spirit-filled. But we do strange things. And we apologize for that, kind of. Not really? Not really. Okay, a couple of us, not really. And, um, and, and so what I want to say is this this morning, which I believe is so important. And as a traveling speaker, I would never do this. I would just come in, drop a Holy Spirit bomb, say, peace, see you later. Come back another year, hopefully. Sometimes not. But because we're walking together, because we're journeying together, I want us to understand something amazing about the body and the family of Christ. I don't know about you, but there are ways that my family does things that I don't always like or aren't my preferences. And the thing about family is we have to, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but we have to realize what our Christocentric, non-negotiable doctrines of the Bible, and what are those things that are highly debated for some reasons that if we don't feel that comfortable with, we can say, you know what, that's good for them, and I'm good over here. Because the thing about family and this church is we don't desire perfect agreement. We're looking for passionate connection. Because when there's a passionate connection of those who are solidified and founded in the person, the Savior Jesus, it means there are some things that we're going to have to work through together. And that's what iron sharpening iron is. It's us rubbing shoulders together to pull out the truth of what the Bible says so that we can move forward in all that God's called us to do. If it's not in the Bible, I don't want it. And that's how we should all live. And that's why we all have a responsibility to search the Word of God so that we can find out what's in there and be empowered to do it. And so today, in all of our different settings, in all of our different backgrounds, put everything you grew up with aside for a minute. Let's look to the Bible. We're going to read through about 21 verses, and then I'm going to preach my heart out, and then we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to come and do something supernatural in you, and hopefully eventually through you. Amen? Acts chapter 2, verses 1. Uh, this is what it says, and again, I'm going very quickly, and I apologize. You can watch the video later if you want. Acts chapter 2, verses 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. The day of Pentecost, this Pentecostal word that you've always heard, simply means 
50. It was 50 days from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day of Pentecost. When the day had fully arrived, they were all together in one place. Those they were those 120 from last chapter. The apostles, Jesus' family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters, and all the early Christians were gathered together. The amazing thing, which we'll see in a couple weeks, is that 120 quickly turned into three thousand people but here we are 120 of the believers they were all together in one place suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting it was a supernatural sound it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind if this was happening in Tennessee those alarms would be going off You know those things that make you get up and go to your basement for no reason in the middle of the night? Especially when you're brand new to Tennessee and you're like, oh my gosh, like that sounds like you're at war when those alarms go off. Savannah and I, Dan and JC, we're like three, four months into living in Tennessee and we're downstairs in my basement, huddled down, water, blankets, enough food for the next 36 years, ready to not be wiped out. That's what would have happened in Jerusalem in the day of Pentecost if it was in Tennessee, but it wasn't. And... And so there they were, this supernatural sound like a mighty rushing wind. Can I tell you something? As we work through the Bible, and in fact, as you attend this church, we're going to talk about supernatural things. The thing about supernatural is it's not have to be scary. It's just superior to the natural. And I believe too many Christian people give too much credit to coincidence. I remember once I was preaching in a large church in Australia in one of the cities there, and I was talking about this passage of Scripture, and I began to speak how on the day of Pentecost, like a mighty rushing wind, this, the power of God was turning up, and the very second I said it came like the sound of a mighty rushing wind, the entire 2,000-seat auditorium in which we were all in began to shake like an earthquake was happening, and the power went out in a grid around that church. Now, we can say that was coincidence. Or, we can believe that we serve a God who does superior to the natural things that maybe our finite mind may not be able to understand. It was a sign to declare the bigness of God. Now, I can't make that happen. I can't go to my button in my iPad and go, building, shake, lights go out, like that, I don't have that ability. I would love for it to happen today. The likelihood of it happening is probably very, very low. But we have to understand this was a real story. And the Holy Spirit came like the sound of a violent, mighty, rushing wind. And I tell you, in that building that night, God moved in such a powerful way. I remember a young boy's name was Shem. He was 11 years old. He was born deaf in one ear. They brought him up the front and we prayed that the power of God would touch him, 11 years old. And in that moment, God opened his ear and he heard for the first time since he was born. Come on, somebody give Jesus praise. I remember his face so clearly. He sent me messages later on so excited about what God had done. So there they were all, suddenly like the sound of a violent wind came from heaven. It was a heavenly wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 3, 
they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. This is another supernatural sign. This is not a metaphor. This is something the Bible and all theologians agree that this was a supernatural sign that looked like fire and it came and rested upon each one of them. In the Bible, in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, there's a book called Exodus. And in Exodus, it's when the, uh, the Israelites were, had left Egypt, and de- by day, there was a cloud that hovered over them, and by night, there was a pillar of fire that was above them, so that e- every day, there was a cloud that represented God's presence, and in the night, there was a pillar of fire that represented the presence of God. The amazing thing about that is that there was one big flame that was resting upon the people of God, and on this new day, in the Holy Spirit came, that flame split into individual tongues of fire, giving us a prophetic representation that it's now we all have a personal, intimate empowerment and relationship through the Holy Spirit. It represents the presence of God in the Old Testament. And here, it's a representation of the presence of God on all believers. Amen? This is why we've called this series The Church on Fire, because we want to be a fire-branded kind of people that are burning with the love of Jesus for a broken and hurting world that can take the power of the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives and be a light, be hope to the hopeless and healing to the broken, because it's what Jesus came to do. And He said, you will receive miraculous power for a purpose to be a witness of Jesus to the world and we're going to burn because where you put fire it leaves a mark when I was young we used to light lighters and get them real hot and then stick them on our hands because that's what teenagers do strange things but fire leaves a mark don't do that teenagers they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separate and came to rest upon each one of them. All of them were then filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. We're going to come back to that because we're going to spend a bunch of today's message speaking about what is tongues and what does that look like. Verse 5 says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them had heard their own language being spoken. Another supernatural sign, a sign that is superior to the natural. Verse 7, Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, Galileans were generally considered to be uneducated people, and so they were trying to differentiate. They're speaking in tongues. They're speaking in a language they shouldn't know how to speak in, and we're all hearing them in our own languages, but they're Galileans, so that can't be so. They'll be like saying they're Australians. How do they know how to, what even happens in the world because they live on an island all the way in the southern hemisphere where we ride kangaroos to school? I mean, you guys don't even know that we do that, but we do. That's why, Michael, you're going to come. We'll ride some kangaroos together. We need some big kangaroos for you and me, though, right? I mean, we need like some serious kangaroos. Anyway. Verse 8. Then how is it that each of us hear them in, their own, in our own language? Verse 9 says, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, which speaks of current day 
Iran. Residents of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, which talks of uh, current day Iraq and Kuwait and the western parts of Syria, Judea, Israel, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. That word, the other word, that's what we call current day Turkey. Egypt and Libya uh, and parts of Libya and Serene, which is current northern Africa, and visitors from Rome, which is Italy. All right. Uh, anyone been to Italy? It's, it's a good place. That's all we have to say about Italy. 11, both Jews and converts to Judaism, uh, Cretans, which was people from Greece, and the Arabs, which is currently, uh, current day Saudi Arabia. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The amazing picture that God is doing here is, we'll speak more about the heavenly language, which we would call speaking in tongues, but here, God's doing something prophetic. He's doing something supernatural in the book of Acts. He says, you will be my witnesses of Jesus to Judea, to Jerusalem, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit coming upon us for the main primary purpose of being a witness to the world of who Jesus is. God specifically picked this day of Pentecost because that was when the Jews would be celebrating Shavuot. It's, this called, it's the Feast of Weeks. Essentially, without getting into it too much, is a time in the Jewish calendar where everybody came from every nation each Jew came from their individual nations to gather for this feast. And so what happens is, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus, sorry, the Holy Spirit is coming to help us cross cultures, different nations, and to cross language barriers so that the gospel can be preached. They come from every nation, they gather in one place, and there the Holy Spirit pours out and he, they begin to speak in other tongues as a sign of what the Holy Spirit just did. And there lies the entire globe of Jewish people and there would be some Gentiles there who are hearing them in their own language as a sign that the gospel is going to go to the nations. Because we'll see in a couple of weeks that that day 3,000 people were saved. And when 3,000 people are saved in a global gathering, then 3,000 people are going to scatter into the world so that they can go and take the gospel to the far corners of the earth. The Holy Spirit is not stupid. He is not chaotic. He is timely. He is sovereign. He is profound. And he picked this specific moment moment in history to gather the people of God to fill them with the power of God so they can go into all the world to be a witness of the risen King Jesus. Come on, if you love him, somebody say amen. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. It sounds like people picking on crazy charismatics. They're loopy. They're demonic, they're this, they're that, That's, they look like they're like the world, they look drunk. It's the same response to what happened to Jesus' apostles. They're crazy, they're drunk. Now, it's not about being a charismatic, it's not be about being a Pentecostal, it's not about being a Baptist, it's not about this or that. Denominations that build barriers between the body of Christ and divisions are demonic. 
don't let divisions separate the body of Christ, especially over non-essential issues. We have to be able to get along if I like brown shoes and you like black shoes. That's fine. We have to realize that we don't want to live in this denominationalism concept because we are one body in Christ with different expressions. And it's got to be okay. We need to be Jesus-following, Bible-believing, Spirit-filled followers of Jesus. That's what we're called to. That's what we're commissioned for. And that's how we will walk in unity with people we don't agree with. And the Bible says where there's unity, God commands a blessing where there's unity, where we can walk in unity. The Bible says the world will know who we are by the love that we have one to another. That's not just us as a church. That is the body of Christ. And while the world looks on in a divided church, they're wondering what's going on. But if we could unite around the person of Jesus and we can move and influence our spheres and our sectors where God has called us to. It's not about who's doing it, this and that. Of course, if it's contradictory to Scripture, we have to fix it. But if we put it aside and we focus on Christ and Him crucified, the Bible says, if He be lifted up, He will draw all men unto Himself. I have a friend, he says, look, what God, look, look what's happened across the world with a divided church. Imagine what would happen with a united church. Imagine what would happen if the church could unify. These are not, uh, sorry, it says that they look at them, they're drunk, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11 and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. And he said, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you carefully. This is where Peter goes back to the Bible because he's a godly leader, to help people understand what is happening in front of them. This is where Peter gets up and preaches his first sermon in the book of Acts, which we'll look more into over the coming weeks. But he gets up and he says, something supernatural is happening. I understand that's a little bit crazy and some people are confused. Some are amazed. Some are confused. He said, let me just go back to the Bible for a minute and tell you what was happening. And he says, he says this. He says, uh, these people are not drunk as you would suppose. He said, for it's only nine in the morning. Verse 16, he says, no, this is what was spoken by the greatest prophet in all of the Bible, in all of Christian history, the prophet Joel. Amen. Come on, somebody. Verse 17, it says, in these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. On old, uh, will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was witnessed in the upper room with 120 contained males and females, rich people, Poor people, affluent people, and non-affluent people. The outpouring of the Spirit was a prophetic picture for what God was going to do in the nations. And Peter says, the prophet Joel said, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. The word all in the Greek means all. Men, women, males, females, rich, 
poor, weak, strong, famous, and forgotten. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and they will prophesy. They will speak the oracles of God, the scripture, and the message of Jesus. I will show wonders in the heaven above and, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and the great and glorious days of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. At the end there and at the beginning, Peter jumps up and he says, In the last days, this is what will happen. The prophet Joel said and prophesied, In the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Peter, within this prophetic picture, is acknowledging that we are living in the last days. The back of the Bible, the scripture there, it talks about the moon will be turned to blood and all the good stuff we like to use to write books about 99 reasons that the world's going to end in 1999. And then we write a new one. This is zero reasons why the world's going to finish in 2000. They obviously didn't write a book in 2000, you know what I'm saying? There's genuinely a guy who did this for about six years in a row. 84 reasons the world's going to end in 1984. Hold on. 85 reasons going to end in 1985. I mean, he made a squillion dollars writing a book of... But Peter here, he says, we're living in the last days. It's, a, it's an eschatological, which speaks of the end times theology. He's presenting that from the day of Jesus' resurrection and from the outpouring of his spirit, we have stepped into the final days of the people of God. We are living in them. This doesn't mean it's happening tomorrow. This doesn't mean it's happening next week, but we are living in the end times. We are the end times church who have been filled by the spirit of God, and we don't want to get too caught up in worrying when he's coming back because we don't know when he's coming back. We need to be caught up being empowered by the Holy Spirit to go be a witness, to prophesy of the goodness of God to the world that needs Jesus. Because although there will be an end of days, somebody's end of day could be tomorrow. So our primary purpose is not to be a witness of end times, but to be a witness of Jesus to those who are in front of us. So Peter goes to the Word of God to clarify what was happening in the natural. And here we look at a spirit-filled people who are equipped, who are ready, and who are prepared to step into the greatest mission of the world. This is what we would call the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. We're living in exciting days. We're living in the days where God has ordained us to reach across our cultural backgrounds. And we have America's I've spoke about it before, but America funds over 70% of global mission throughout the world. The United States of America is a force to be reckoned with, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is under attack. This nation is under demonic attack to rob it of its purity, of its power. That doesn't mean this nation's done everything perfect, but it means that we live in a season where this is the nation that influences the world. And that's why we want to be the kind of church that influences the nation, that influences the world, with the Bible to see the gospel go to the four corners of the earth. And he gave us his Holy Spirit to do and to empower us to complete our mission. And so I want to talk here very quickly in the next couple of moments we have, and then we want to ask God to come and pour out His Spirit upon our church. I very quickly want to work 
talk about, you know, in Australia, it's not a big deal. In America, it's a huge deal, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I say it's not a big deal in Australia because we're just pretty small. There's about seven charismatic churches in the whole country. We just do our thing. Here, there's like six million different denominations that have six million different doctrines around this, that, and the other. And we overcomplicate when the Holy Spirit doesn't have to be complicated. He can be super simplified. Not to discredit the potency and the depths of mystery that is in the Holy Spirit, but we have to understand to not overcomplicate this wonderful gift that is the Holy Spirit on the modern day church. Amen? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, we see it talked about in the book of Luke's and in Luke and where he talks about you'll be clothed with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Or we know in Acts chapter 1 verse 4 it says on one occasion Jesus was eating with them and he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift which my Father has promised which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit Amen. I want to tell you this. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what we believe. That every Christ follower is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Every Christ follower, regardless of if you're functioning in the gifts, is indwelt by the promised Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So anyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them does not belong to Christ. Now that presents us with a couple of problems that we could then say, well, if you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you're not a Christian, which I would believe would be incorrect doctrine and terrible. Ephesians 1.13 says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So Ephesians says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, the moment those who believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. When you believe, when you put your trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says the Holy Spirit has sealed you, and He is the guarantee of your inheritance that one day you will live in eternal glory with Christ forever. Christians, on the moment you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells and resides within you. That's the gospel. It's not a gospel of works that if you don't perform miracles, signs, and wonders, and speak in other tongues, then you're not saved. It's a gospel of grace that says, if you believe in me, regardless of your good works, I will put my spirit in you, and I will save your soul. That is the gospel, and anything else tarries on the line of another gospel that is not the gospel of unmerited favor and the grace of God. Amen. We also believe that there is a second or subsequent baptism 
of the Holy Spirit. That the Christian can be filled or, so, so a Christian who has the Holy Spirit living in them, who is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, can then be clothed or filled or empowered or baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we believe that this can simultaneously happen at conversion. We believe that it can happen after conversion. And the reason we believe this is because the Bible teaches us so. And, and this is where the doctrine gets super conflicting and controversial. Some would believe that there's not a second baptism because there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. But one Lord, one faith, and one baptism is us dying to self, dying with Christ, and being raised again to salvation. So there's a subsequent infilling, if it helps. We get so caught up in semantics. Semantics means we say the same thing a different way and we argue over it. There are subsequent infillings of the Holy Spirit that can happen in a moment. If you were in this church and you responded to the gospel and you believed in your heart, the Holy Spirit comes and He dwells within you and then you can be filled with the power of the gospel like they were in the day of Pentecost, like they were all through the scriptures, for power to be a witness. And it can happen the day of, it can happen the next day, but we have to understand this is not a kind of feeling that makes you a better person or higher on God's list of favorites. It's another gift that He gives us that can happen multiple times throughout your life for filling, for courage, for empowerment, for purpose of being a witness to Jesus. Acts chapter 19 verse 5. This won't be on the screen. It says, when they heard this, they were baptized into water into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. So this situation was, Paul found these guys and he said, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? He's like, they're like, who the heck is the Holy Spirit? He said, then who have you been baptized? I said, we were baptized with John. And he said, that's a good job. He's like, let me baptize you unto salvation in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were saved. Then Paul lays his hands upon them and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues and prophesy. There was a salvation moment as they believed in their heart. Unto salvation, the Holy Spirit comes in. He seals you with the Holy Spirit of promise. Then the Apostle Paul lays his hands upon them, and it says, then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same we can see the, in Acts chapter 4. We'll get there one day in the future. But in Acts chapter 4, the same apostles who were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, on this inauguration of the church of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then a few chapters later, they were facing resistance as they preached the gospel. And as they faced resistance, as they all went back to this place and they began to pray and worship God. It says, and the Holy Spirit came and He filled them. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, living in a constant communion, empowered to live by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Which leads us to another topic which we're going to race through called, and we'll, we'll unpack this whole concept in a whole message, maybe even a series eventually, but the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 
It says, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, did I just read the same thing? To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. And to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these work one in the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one as he determines. These are gifts of the spirit. And what I want us to understand quickly about gifts of the spirit is that the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life is to empower us for witness of who Jesus is and to empower us to live godly, holy, and righteous lives. The Holy Spirit is in us for the sake of Christ-like living. We see that in Galatians 5, which speaks about the fruit, the evidence of those who walk in the Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit is upon us for power, for witness, for miracles. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are supposed to be complementary to the witness of Christ. Mark 16, it says us that go and preach the gospel, heal the sick, raise the dead, drive out uh, demons, cleanse the lepers. He says, and as you go, these things will happen. He says, and these signs will confirm the word that you preach. So the signs are supposed to follow the preaching of the gospel. They're complementary. The miracles, the gifts, prophecies, speaking in other tongues, gifts of healings, gifts of miracles are to complement and empower the preaching of the gospel so that people could see the love of Christ they have for them. Which then we hit this topic called cessationism. Anyone heard of that word, cessationism? Cessationism is centered the doctrine that the spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, and these other things, ceased to exist when the apostles, really when it was when they, they would suggest that it's when the Bible was made into completion, when, the, when the, the canon of Scripture was put together, and now we have this. The reason they, this is brought up is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecy, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Can I tell you, Bible-believing Christians believe this. That the gifts are for today, but one day they will cease to exist. Because what we see, there are three problems with this passage of Scripture, and this is the first one. One, if according to this idea, prophecy and tongues were to pass away when the perfect had come, then so would knowledge. Because in the same passage, it discusses that prophecy, it's going to have an end date. Speaking in tongues, it's going to have an end date. Knowledge, it's going to pass away when the perfect has come. And so if we could suggest that prophecy and tongues were done away with when the perfect came, then we can also throw out knowledge as well. But dare I suggest that's not what the Bible's saying. The second problem is this. We do not believe that the Bible is the perfect. We believe that the Bible is perfect. We believe it was written by the perfect. 
We believe that the perfect is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And His coming back will be the day that He returns for the, to, to, in, to inherit the earth. It will be the day, the second coming of King Jesus. That's when the perfect is come. And who knows, when Jesus comes to establish His new kingdom, we're not going to need to prophesy. We're not going to need to speak in tongues. We're not going to need to heal the sick because Jesus is going to be there and everything's going to be sorted out and made perfect. The gifts of the Holy Spirit did not die with the apostles. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are present and active today in the life of believers who would choose to receive them and walk in them because the perfect has not come. This book is not the perfect. This book is perfect. It was written by the perfect, the great Holy Spirit, to give us instruction, exhortation, and correction so we can be spirit-filled, empowered believers to go and be witnesses of the resurrected King Jesus. Jesus, who died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and is coming back one day for victory. Come on, if you're excited about Jesus being the perfect, amen. Three, the third reason I believe it's wrong is because the countless testimonies of miracles that I've seen throughout the world and all my journeys would either have to be lies or demonically produced. I doubt that Shem, the 11-year-old boy who was deaf from birth, was lying. And I doubt that demons came up to heal him. His name is Jesus. Amen? The worship team can come. There's another topic in here which we're not going to have time to get into, unfortunately. But it's the most controversial of all of them. Speaking in other tongues. We'll go real quickly while the band get here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, there's a lot of people that speak in tongues who are resounding, clanging cymbals. Because they speak in tongues and do nothing. But what it says Paul here is saying, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, the tongues that people can understand or a language that angels understand. So this is what we have to, when, we, when, we, when it says speaking in tongues, in the book of Acts chapter 2 verse 4, they spoke in another language and people heard them in their own language. It's a supernatural sign of speaking in other tongues as people heard what they were saying in their own language for the purpose of reaching that broader community. But then the Bible continues to teach us about the language of angels, which is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's called speaking in tongues. So speaking in tongues is a heavenly language. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, For if anyone speaks in a tongue but does not, uh, sorry, if anyone speaks in a tongue, does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them, but they utter the mysteries of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues is a direct line, a direct prayer language to God, and is not understood by men except for those who have the spiritual gift of interpreting tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the other who prophesies builds up the church. Speaking in tongues strengthens your inner spirit man. And you'll see there, we're meant to prophesy to build up the church, but speaking in tongues is a personal prayer language that builds up your spirit. So it's a direct access prayer language to God. It's a prayer language that strengthens your spirit man. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 says, If I pray in a tongue, 
my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? Here it is, and people say, well, it's just babbling. It's just saying stuff, and so what's the point? And Paul addresses it. He says, if I pray in my spirit, so if I pray in my tongues, my, it's my spirit that's praying, but my mind is not at use. So what shall I do? He says, well, I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with understanding. Praying in tongues is praying in your spirit, but your mind is not conjuring up the words. Paul says that you sing in your spirit and sing with understanding. Being a person who believes in the gift of speaking in tongues is not to do away with your mind, it's to put your mind at rest so you can enter into the mysteries and utter the mysteries of God and be in direct communication with heaven with your heavenly language. And then when you're with people to pray in a language that all can understand, so you're building up yourself in the spirit and you're building up the people with your words. Praying in tongues is simply this. It's a heavenly language not understood by human beings that the Holy Spirit gives us for personal prayer and worship. That when we do it, it builds up and edifies our soul. When we say personal prayer language, I don't believe it's saying you can only do it in your bedroom. I believe it's saying it's personal. It's not for other people to understand. If you ever stand next to me in worship, you will hear me babbling away in a language that you will not understand. But it's not for you to understand. If I wanted you to understand it, I'd get up here and do it, and I'd have somebody over here who has the gift to interpret what I'm saying. But if I don't have that, then I'm not called to get up here and babble in another tongue that you'd understand because it only builds me. It won't build you. It's a personal gift that God has given you for direct access, for prayer and for worship and for communion with the Lord to build yourself up, the Bible says, in your most holy faith. It strengthens the believer. So should everybody speak in tongues? What does the Bible say? The Apostle Paul, he says, I would like it that all of you spoken other tongues but I would rather that you prophesy so Paul has a preference prophecy over speaking in tongues the apostle Paul desired that all would speak in tongues the apostle Paul spoke in tongues the Bible says more than all of them the apostle Paul also said are all apostles are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. And I know it's mildly controversial, but I prefer the Bible over people's opinions. And so the, understand this, can you be a Christian and a spirit-filled, baptized Christian who's endued with power to be a witness and not speak in other tongues? Absolutely. Does the Bible say that all should desire to speak in other tongues? Definitely. I believe that you can live your Christian life and be an effective witness without ever speaking in tongues, but I believe the Bible says you should desire it because it's a gift. And Paul says you should desire all of the gifts. Do all have gifts of healings? No, but Paul in Corinthians, he says you should desire it. And I've found in my Christian walk, as I desire gifts, I start to see them manifest in my life. 
We've been tricked out of desiring them by pretending it's just for that person. And we do know there are different functions within a body. My thumb is not the same as my toe. My stomach is not the same as my heart. My arm does not do the same thing as my leg. But it doesn't mean I can't desire the gifts. And so can you be a Christian and not speak in other tongues? Absolutely. Because you're not saved by speaking in tongues. You're saved by grace through faith. Not any works, lest any man should boast. Is speaking in tongues make you more spiritual than the person next to you who doesn't speak in tongues? Absolutely not. How dare you be so prideful? But Paul says, I desire that you would speak and have this language. Paul says, I do it more than all of you. But where and how I do it's important. I'll say it again, the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to, is to empower us for witness. And it's to empower us to live righteous. The Holy Spirit is in, in us for the sake of Christ-like living. And He comes upon us with the power to be a witness of who He is. And the gifts, and all of the gifts, speaking in tongues, gifts of healing, prophecy, words of wisdom, they're there to complement the witness of who Jesus is and which is where to desire the gifts. And so who can be filled with this great Holy Spirit? Christians have in, the Holy Spirit indwelt within them, but who can receive the subsequent infilling and who can receive it on repeat? Well, it's those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Those who believe in Jesus can desire a touch from heaven, a do drink the heavenly wine because we're not drunk as you would suppose but let me tell you if you've ever seen a drunk guy talking to a lamppost it's because he doesn't care what the lamppost thinks and if Christians can be filled with new wine if we can be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit we'll have a confidence and a courage to tell the world all about Jesus and he gives us these gifts he gives us these list of gifts that we have access to by grace through faith to complement the witness of Jesus so we can see the sick healed so we can see demons driven out so we can have a direct prayer language that accesses the throne of heaven that has nothing to do with anybody else but me and God and it's intimate and it's private and it's personal and it builds me up in my most holy faith it's not the Holy Spirit is not weird he's powerful and when power enters the room some weird things happen because he is superior to the natural I don't want to serve a God who is the same as the natural. I serve a God who took dirt and breathed life into it and humanity was formed. He is superior to the natural and I want everything that he's got for me. And if I desire to speak in heavenly languages and I never do, then I will continue to serve him under the gifts and the unction and the power of the Holy Spirit to be an effective witness. Don't let not speaking in dumb tongues be a place of condemnation. Let it be a place of trust and say, God, I want it, but I'm not, you're not my, my puppet master, sir. you're not my servant. If you want to give it to me, I'll take it and I'm ready and I'm active. And if he gives it to you, when you're in your personal space utter the heavenly language and if he gives you the word of prophecy prophesy build each other up but don't get on your high horse and think you're better than somebody else or you're better than the church down the road because we speak in tongues because we need to unify around the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being a witness to the world of who Jesus is and how do we receive the Holy Spirit the Bible says pray and it says have hands laid upon you you can pray like the upper room 
room and the power of the Holy Spirit will fall upon you. Or you can pray and somebody can come lay their hands like Paul did and you receive the great Holy Spirit. So we're going to spend the next couple minutes just praying, just believing for the great Holy 